0: old-timey, crimey. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we are here this week with yet another bonkers historical true crime case, and then some more true crime, and then some more true crime. (laughs) There's all the true crime. There is a great amount of crime in this particular case. There is. People couldn't stop criming. They were crime left and right. It's fun to crime sometimes. It, you know what? Criming is, if it's your hobby, you may as well just go for it. Yeah. Sometimes you got to crime. Have fun criming. So we actually have a couple of updates. On previous cases. Which is amazing. I'm so excited about this. Doing a historical true crime podcast, it's so rare that you get any sort of updates. But in the past week, two listeners have reached out to us to tell us about cases we've covered and some new information. Which is awesome. It's incredible. So, okay, first we were contacted by uh, Larry Miller. And this was in regards to the Charlie Ross case. We did several episodes back. I think it was like in the fall-ish. Everything runs together. But also,
1: we're sorry, Larry. Yes,
0: we're sorry, Larry, because we questioned whether or not, uh, regarding his comments on uh, an article about the case, whether he might be an internet troll. And he reached out to say, hi, not a troll.
1: And he is not a troll. He, he, he is a real person and not messing with us at all. No. So thank you, Larry, and we're sorry.
0: Yes, but he enjoyed the troll comment, he said. He and his wife both laughed at it. So he reached out because he had commented about, if you recall in the Charlie Ross case, there was a man whose name first was Nelson Miller, and then if I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going by the seat of my pants with recollections here, but he changed it to Gustav Blair and then later claimed to be... Charlie Ross, the young boy who had been kidnapped in 1874. And then there were some court battles about it, and they even, the court actually deemed him Charlie Ross because Charlie Ross's brother didn't show up to the trial, (laughs) hearing whatever it was. Well, Larry has confirmed that through DNA, they were able to establish that Nelson Miller slash Gustav Blair slash says he's Charlie Ross was in fact a Miller So not a Charlie Ross. Not a Charlie Ross. So thank you, Larry, for that amazing update. And if you want more information on that, they have a website that they've built, the family has. It's charlieross.com, C-H-A-R-L-E-Y-R-O-S-S. And the link will be in the show notes and will hopefully work. For some reason, half of my links have been active in like Spotify and half of them are just words with no link. It's aggravating. I need to fix it. But yeah, so that was amazing, and you should go check out the website and the information, especially if you're interested in that case. So there was that, and then we were reached out to, this was also another exciting email to get, I was very thrilled, we were reached out to by Jessica, and she said that, uh, I'll just read the email, last summer my father, cousin, and I traveled to find more about our genealogy. We found out tons of information about our family. We discovered that we are related to the Germond murder. Now, if you remember, that was the one I know when we did that one, because it was Thanksgiving Eve was when the murder was. So we did that one around Thanksgiving. We traveled to the house and were greeted by the homeowner. She showed us outside and where the road used to to be. She also brought us into the milk barn and where the bodies were found. This got me. She never senses anything creepy in the house, and actually her family honors the family every Thanksgiving Eve. Aww. That just, it fills my heart to know that this family is still remembered and honored uh, on what was such a tragic date. It's, it's, It's wonderful to me. So I really appreciate Jessica reaching out and giving us that update, and she also sent me pictures! So, we have pictures of the Germond farm. Yes. Do you know how much time I spent on Google Maps trying to figure out exactly where this was? Because there weren't actual addresses involved. It's just on this road. Yes. So, being able to see pictures of the actual house and the barn and the gravesite and everything was just wonderful. And so, yes, thank you to Larry and thank you to Jessica. We love our listeners, and if any of you out there have any updates on cases we've covered, please feel free to get in touch because it's so incredibly rare and exciting when we get to experience that and get to share that with our audience.
1: And also, if you just happen to be related to somebody that did crimes or was involved in crimes, let us know.
0: Give us some info. We'll look it up. We'll do a show on it. Absolutely, yes. We will do a show essentially about your genealogy. We'll help. <laughs> yes, we'll help. This is something that we've, we've really worked at over the past couple years and kind of honing our research skills, and I put that into practice in researching my own family history. So, yeah, if you've got a murder in your family and you want us to take a look at it, you know, especially if it's pre-1953, then email us, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com, or come over to our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are old timey crammy in all those places. Links are maybe in the show notes. Who knows? Maybe. It's a toss-up. We're drinking tonight, so <laughs> it's, it's
1: hard to say what's going to happen. Yeah.
0: So, all right. I'm going to skip, since we had those wonderful updates, I'm going to skip the Patreon, but just know that Amber did tell me an amazing story that started with a torso and then also included a skull on a stick that a little boy had to testify about. And some some family drama, and some... uh, Romantic drama. Ménage a trois, perhaps. Sexual drama. Lots of drama. Lots of drama. Put a head on the stick. Yeah. (laughs) We are going to be talking today, and just a heads up, this is going to be a two-parter about the Jake factor, John factor. What did you go by in your notes? I switched back and forth between Jake and John. Okay. All right. I mostly do Jake, I believe. He was born uh, Yakov Faktorovits. Faktorovitz, I think I got that right. And, but he preferred to go by Jake, but in some cases he was John, which just makes research so much fun when people have multiple names. Yes. Yes, <laughs> it does. So, yes, he was born on October 8th, 1892. Uh, Said he was born in London but spent his early years in Poland, but there are some accounts that say he was actually born four years earlier than that, and in Poland. So, murky right from the start.
1: Yeah, because according to him, I found an article saying that he was born in Hull, England, but then according to other sources, he was born in Poland. So...
0: And we don't have a lot of reasons to trust a word that comes out of his mouth. No, and and we'll get into that. Yep, yep, we will. So his father was a rabbi, possibly may have also done several other jobs, which it's entirely possible that it's all true, that he was a rabbi and I think there was a clerk in there and, and some other things. You know, he could have been any or all of those things at different points in his life. Or at the same point. Yes, yes. So his mother, uh, Jake Factor's mother, was Russian, but grew up in Poland. He was one of ten children, possibly the second youngest, with one sister coming after him. And as his mother was his father's second wife, this includes some half-siblings. For instance, he had a half-brother who was 15 years his senior. So kind of a, a little blended family there. So that half-brother and Jake Factor were both trained as barbers from an early age, to the extent that eventually his name would become uh, Jake the Barber. Jake the Barber. Which he hated. Oh, did he? He despised it to the extent that he would bribe reporters not to use that name in their articles. Oh. Uh, The Chicago Tribune was one that I don't think took bribes. (laughs) They used it quite frequently, if I remember correctly. Because fuck that guy. (laughs) Right? So his brother Max, let's put this together. He became Jake Factor in America. His brother became Max Factor. Yep, that one, guys. And Max would found what became a cosmetic giant. Uh, So in the late 1800s, Max became the official cosmetologist for the Russian royal family, as well as the Imperial Russian Grand Opera. That's some impressive shit right there. That really is. The Russian royal family doesn't just pick up some hack off the street to do their makeup, let me tell you. And so then later, he left Russia because there were some rumblings of anti-Semitism. And this is a Jewish family. So he left in order to ensure his family's safety. He went to California eventually was responsible for some of the most recognizable looks in Hollywood. Think Jean Harlow's blonde hair, Lucille Ball's curly red hair and her fake lashes. He also invented pancake makeup, because the previous stuff, I guess, would be more likely to like crack. It was too dry. And so this was better makeup for use like under the hot lights and everything. Oh, I should state while we're talking about Max Factor, and in regards to Jake Factor, my show notes are titled, Maybe He's Born With It, Maybe It's Sociopathy. Nice. I know that's Maybelline, not Max Factor, but I, it, just, it came to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, back to Jake Factor. The New York Times called Jake Factor a suave, curly-haired speculator. Hmm. Yeah. But, before he was a speculator, he was an immigrant child. With his parents moving the family to the U.S. in 1904... He was 12 at that point, if we believe most accounts of when he was born. They started in St. Louis, then went to Chicago. So he spent his teen years in the Midwest. And Max, to kind of give an idea of how, where the family stands in relation to each other geographically, he moved out to California in 1908. And that's where he would get his cosmetics and hairstyling skills into the movies. He even showed up in a few cameos. That's awesome. So really neat. Yeah.
1: Well, and I, I thought one of the interesting things here, he could barely read or write because of a limited amount of schooling in Poland and then coming to the U.S. not really having any actual schooling. So it's not like he was illiterate, but he never learned how to read or write in English. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, he, he didn't really get a lot of schooling. There was extreme poverty that the Factor family was dealing with, like many immigrants when you know, they arrive in America. His mother had to work as a street peddler to help the family get by, and Jake started out as a boot black, which is, of course, a shoe shiner. And Jake himself said, Many a time I went to bed in the attic without having eaten all day. I decided I'll be a rich man someday. I started selling papers and shining shoes.
1: No, you gotta start somewhere. You really do.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And then after that, he went on to start barbering at his brother's barber shop. that was probably around his teens, and that money also went to the family. He transitioned from his brother's shop to the Morrison Hotel as sort of like a house barber. And the clientele there is pretty posh and powerful. So he got to know some people who might be handy to know in his later career, as we might call it. <laughs> he then had his own shop at Halsted Street and Roosevelt Road. But according to the Chicago Tribune, he later, quote, left it when a rustic customer had him arrested for running up a tonsorial bill of $5. So he overcharged somebody for a haircut, and it was a rustic. So somebody from out in the sticks, you know, a hillbilly. He's not going to know any better. Yeah, so let's say, just guessing based on kind of the timeline, maybe 1915, that $5 would be 142 Wow. Yeah. And tonsorial means anything related to hairdressing. I was pretty sure, but yes, I did have to look that up. I think the reason I was pretty sure is because the monk's fringe that they have is called a tonsure. Oh. So that was where I got that connection. Etymology is fun. And so in 1913, Jake had a son, Jerome, and was married began his family, and then my, my, this next section of my notes, my heading is bond, fake bond. Right? I am just in love with my own hilarity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. So. I do like that, though. Bond, <laughs> fake bond. <laughs> it works on a couple different levels, you know? It does. So, you know, barbering is nice to pay the bills and all, but he wanted to be a rich man. And even with all this tonsorial overcharging, barbering still won't make you really rich. Stock fraud will make you rich. Absolutely. It'll also get the feds interested in you, probably. And that did happen in 1919. Jake Factor had a federal indictment against him for stock fraud. His way of resolving this was to just say, okay, I'll give the money back. And the feds actually dropped the indictment and closed the case, and he went on his merry way. Must be nice. Yeah, right? I mean, that's... You can just resolve everything by making people whole and not have to do any sort of punishment in return for your wrongdoings. I mean, I guess the people who get their money back are happy, (laughs) I suppose. Yeah. Seems like maybe he might not learn from this. Maybe. I don't know. I wonder. I wonder. So, when he went on his merry way... He landed in Florida, it seems, where he decided, okay, so the stock fraud didn't really work out. Maybe I'll try some land fraud. So he sold what he called improved lots. I mean, maybe a lot being completely underwater is an improvement if you like swimming. As opposed to what? Yeah. (laughs) Well, before it was swamp. Now it's just under the water. Yes so yes there were more indictments coming up for those in 1922 and 1923 but once again nothing came of those and that kind of just fluttered away into the wind as far as
1: newspaper coverage was concerned well i mean the the people pressing charges probably were eaten by alligators and that would help there you go yeah Yeah. sure that's the answer (laughs) solved the case solved it all right guys it's been fun have a great day pack it up
0: (laughs) (laughs) He also committed some mail fraud somewhere. I'm not sure where he was at this point, but he picked up two indictments for that. Did some scams with some Canadian gold mine stock and also some Rhodesian stock scams. Rhodesian is uh, now Zimbabwe, and nothing ever came of indictments for those. Well,
1: that was actually pretty interesting, the Rhodesia one. So I did, I did find out a little bit about that one. This was almost ingenious when he bought Broad Street Press, which was a conservative financial journal, then made the employees boost the Rhodesia copper and gold shares. Now he had bought these shares a few cents a thousand and then everybody ran out to buy
0: them. I think that's actually the uh, maybe I, maybe it was my mistake putting the Rhodesia thing in there then because I thought it was the timeline was then, but he might have he might have doubled down. Oh, on the I Rhodesia wonder if thing. he did Rhodesia twice. He might have done Rhodesia twice, yeah, because I had the, the, the Broad Street Press thing is, is I have like the nineteen twenty six. Oh, okay. So. um... He very well might have gone to dipped in that same well twice. <laughs> oh, my. It would not surprise me at all. He's like, well, it
1: worked before. <laughs> he might have. Yeah, he might have just printed out a bunch of coupons and been like, this isn't even real shit. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Let's just do it. We're going to sell it. I made it myself. Bond. Fake Bond. I colored him
0: in with crayon. <laughs> it's legit. So, yeah, he does really make a lot of money and not see any punishment at this point. He eventually ended up back in Chicago had a 14-room apartment in one of the swankiest areas of the city called the Gold Coast. Yeah, you know if it's called the Gold Coast. <laughs> that better be truth in advertising there. So he didn't like sticking around in one place too much because, you know, you con too many people in one place, that starts getting, you know, so you have to head somewhere else. So he moved to England. In 1924. And he did do the Rhodesia thing twice. Okay, all
1: right. He did it twice. (laughs) I didn't
0: even realize. We're gonna have I didn't realize either. We're gonna have Rhodesia showing up again in a couple years here. (laughs) So at this point, it's 1924, and he got big into penny stocks. Now he had he established what's known as a boiler room operation, where it's basically kind of like high-pressure sales on cold called clients. And it usually involves investments that are on the more questionable side.
1: Everything that came away from this man was questionable. That is very true, yes. He was the first Nigerian prince. (laughs)
0: He was, yes. So how this worked was he sold a stock where you only had to invest as little as two pounds. That's about $170 uh, U.S. today. But, of course, you could invest more. That was just the minimum. And you would do that, and the stock would then return dividends of 7 to 12%. So, for reference, uh, let's say the current dividend for stock in Lowe's Home Improvement uh, is 1.10%. There are some stocks with big dividends. There's a real estate investment trust called Chimera Investment Corp., which definitely sounds like a scam, but is real. At least I hope because I put in an order for shares after seeing how big the dividends are.
1: Chimera definitely sounds like uh, not real.
0: That definitely sounds like a fly-by-night operation. But fingers crossed it's not. They currently have a dividend of 9.1%. But that's, as far as I know, I'm not an expert in stocks. I dabble here and there. That's considered a rarity as far as, you know, returns of dividends are concerned. Nice. So a really, a pretty good return. So to get a good start, Factor did pay out some dividends at first. (laughs) What that did was increased word of mouth about the quality of this investment and how happy people were with it, which brought more investors to him. So then he started really raking it in. And my understanding is that he just took the money. Didn't even invest it in anything, just took the money skipped town, and headed to France with about 500,000, or 41 million today. Wow. He wanted to be a rich man. He was a rich man.
1: Wow.
0: So like a lot of people who run scams like this, he counts on one thing. Embarrassment. Mm Mm-hmm. Embarrassment and shame. People are going to be ashamed of having been tricked, having been bilked, It'll make them look stupid or that's what they think. But everybody, you know, we're all human. We all make mistakes. It happens. And there are some very suave, fancy talking people out there who can just talk the pants right off you. So (laughs) that did work. It kept people from going to the authorities. So it works the same way in like love scams, romance scams, Nigerian prince scams.
1: Yeah, like a lot of people are really embarrassed that they fell for it and they especially after the fact, hindsight being twenty twenty, you're like, Oh, I missed all of those red flags. Yeah. I don't want to tell anyone. I don't want anyone to know. Yeah. And especially I mean, you have to think if some of these investors were, were well to do higher up in business, the very last thing they want to do is admit that they were so dumb because then they're gonna lose the respect of clients, mm-hmm. of employees. Like, I honestly, I could say that if my boss fell for a Nigerian prince scam, I would lose a lot of respect for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You'd really start to wonder about the management of your company and whether you should stay there.
1: Yeah, like, are you sure he should be in charge? He just gave a Nigerian prince $5,000. Yeah.
0: You guys sure? Really?
1: I think I could do a better job. Maybe he's getting a little Looney Tunes in his old age there. Just saying.
0: (laughs) So... Jake Factor came back to America at some point. He married a Helen Stoddard in 1925, so there was a divorce in there. Somewhere. Probably. (laughs) we Hopefully. Uh, Yeah. She had some years back been employed in sex work at Freiburg's Dance Hall. Oh. Which the Chicago Vice Commission called, quote, the most notorious place in Chicago. (laughs) It was shut down in 1918, so she'd been at least out of the dance hall for that long. We don't know what else she was up to. And so Jake Factor had some big-named friends, and he had another scam in the works. So he put these two things together and had his friends back him up financially to get a nice start, even though where did that whole $500,000 go? (laughs)
1: Yeah, like, what happened?
0: Yeah, you you had plenty of money to get started, but that's always kind of a thing with him as we're going to find out. Oh, I don't have any money. Well, he had a gambling problem. Yes, he did, but he seemed to actually be really good at gambling, too, though. Some thing. days. Yeah.
1: Some days he was good at gambling. Yeah. Other days, not so much, because that's the thing with gambling. It's a gamble. It's a gamble. <laughs> it's right there in the name. Sometimes I buy a scratchy ticket and lose all my money. Sometimes I buy a scratchy ticket and hit a $1,000 you don't know what's going to happen. Yes, exactly.
0: So, yeah, I just have this theory that it, it, it's kind of silly, I admit, but I feel like people have a certain amount of luck and some people are just luckier than others. And, you know, they, they randomly go to Atlantic City and, you know, on, on a whim, throw down $50 and walk out with a with 1000 And whereas I would try to do that, and throw down $50 and walk out with zero. (laughs) I'm just, I feel like I'm not a person who was born with a lot of luck. I feel
1: like I'm a person that's born with just a tiny bit of, like just a tiny bit, like not a lot at all. If I throw down $50, I'll leave with 51.
0: I think you have more luck than me, than that too. Because I've seen you gamble. I, you I, do
1: pretty well. I do pretty well some days, but there are other days that I don't do so well. Yeah. But I, I would say overall I am up on, like, across the board. hmm I, I don't really lose money, but I also don't gamble a lot. So, like, I'll have a day where I, I go out and I'm like, let's go crazy. So I went to Vegas for a week one time. And I had, a, I was working as a waitress and I had just a shit ton of change. Mm-hmm. I took all that change, I took it to the bank, and I, I uh, made myself $85 a day that I could gamble with. Mm-hmm. That it's, was it. It's a really good idea to set a limit. So I had a budget, and I was like, I'm going to go to the casino with my $85, and that's everything. So if you sit at a table out there, the drinks are free. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm going to drink $85 worth of booze. Hell or high water, I'm at least getting my money back by being drunk. <laughs> And that's what I would do. I would sit and I would play. And I would end up playing for hours because I would do really well. And then I'd get fucking hammered and I'd lose all my money. But I didn't even care at that point because I'm sloshed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that's how
1: they get you. And that's how everybody should gamble.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My rule is generally $20. But I've never spent an entire day in a casino or just once actually. But um, yeah, once, once, once I've spent $20, whether I'm up or not, I'm out.
1: Yeah. because well, that's what I do with lottery tickets. $20 is my limit on lottery tickets.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always good to set a limit so that you have a stopping point. So I think that Jake Factor, to bring it back to that... Was didn't have a stopping point. He didn't have a stopping point, but I think he had a lot more luck than many people do. It, you know, luck runs out eventually, but I think he was born with a lot more luck than most. <laughs>
1: he was, because honestly, by now, somebody probably should have broken his legs. So I, I, do, yeah. I do think you're right. Maybe he's like, maybe he's just a little bit smart. He's definitely got the salesman thing where he's, he's very charming. People fall for him and whatever he's selling. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's naturally just good at it. And then he, he can take that money and go do whatever else. And he gets out of Dodge. Yes. And that's the important part too, is he grabs it and he goes. He knows he can't stay or it will come
0: back to bite him. Literally take the money and run. Yeah. Yeah. So he is apparently does not have enough money for his next scam, so he ropes in Arnold Rothstein and Al Capone and possibly Legs Diamond, mm-hmm. who we covered way back in episode 27, Dust Up at the Hotsy Totsy, that was back in the Christian Scott era. <laughs> so you can guess where that subtitle came from. <laughs> and just to kind of see how this underworld network... Looked like. Capone was also pals with the owner of Freiburg's Dance Hall. There you go. Where Factor's current wife had worked at one point. So he's all set up. They finance him for his next big scheme. He goes back to England. And so starting around 1926, he's now again promising big returns on a bunch of stocks. And this is what Amber referred to earlier. With him buying a trusted financial press, essentially, a, a publication, and then turning it into his vehicle for uh, a, a financial newsletter that was full of crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I believe there's a fake brokerage in there, too. So he's really just setting up this whole entire house of cards. But it, it's genius. It really is, yeah. Yeah. So like, I'm
1: coming here, nobody really knows what I'm selling or my name, so I'm going to buy this really trusted magazine, Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to put out all this information so that people buy my product.
0: Exactly. Yeah. He essentially turned this very conservative, trusted publication into an an advertisement for his Ponzi scheme. Which is amazing. (laughs) It really is. And lots of people fell for it. There were even some members of the royal family, supposedly. I saw that, yeah. Uh, but also clergymen, school teachers, shopkeepers, widows, and pensioners, and everybody else—pretty much everybody. And so he's not alone in the scheme. He's—it's not a one-man show. He has a whole team of men on it. Although, how aware they are of what's going on is questionable. Whether they know that this is all just a big fraud. Then he did another round, and this time it was more of a, a pump and dump scheme or at least with that as a starting point. So he had another newsletter just called Finance. It had a couple different names that I saw in different places, but one, I was going with Finance. And he mentioned a stock that he thought would be a good buy. And then he threw money at that stock to get the price up. So then the price is up, and other people are also throwing money at it because they believe him when he says it's a good buy. And then he... Cashes out, essentially. People saw that and saw that the stock he had recommended had really skyrocketed, and they thought, okay, this guy's newsletter is totally legit. This gave him credibility. So when he had some more stocks to sell them called Vulcan Copper Mines Limited and also Asbestos and Trusts Holding Limited. Well, that sounds trustworthy. It does. I mean, it does. It's, it's got the word trust right in there. Just ignore that asbestos part. Just
1: breathe in <laughs> the bullshit.
0: Yes, literally. And so people snapped these up because they thought, well, it's from his same newsletter. It must be good. Uh, but they were fake. <laughs> so now, as far as his take, sources very wildly. And let me tell you, they do. Uh, When he fled England again in 1930, he'd made a nice tidy sum of around 1.6 million pounds in old-timey money, which is about 145 million US dollars today. Although when you look at some of the newspaper accounts of how this played out, it does seem like a a large portion of that was paid to the men who were helping him with it. So I, I do actually kind of believe the bigger number, because I don't believe that he would give away most of the money in salary. The bigger number I found was seven or eight million, which is a lot of money.
1: Yeah. Either way, he made several million dollars in these schemes. He had quite a
0: luxurious life in London.
1: Well, and think about it too. This is during the, the Great Depression now. Mm-hmm. Like,
0: well, it, it's coming up on it, yeah, because he he left in nineteen thirty, but it started in nineteen twenty nine, so so pretty soon after the Great Depression started, yes.
1: So this is huge takes of money yeah, for he, this time.
0: He's always even throughout the d- Depression living high on the hog, and so he had a very luxurious life there. He lost fifty thousand in fifty thousand pounds in cards in a single night which is four million U.S. dollars today. Can you imagine losing four million dollars in a night? <laughs> could, could you imagine winning four million dollars in a night? Really, he had some good nights too. So there were some tales told of him, his gambling and his splashy spending. There's a story that he took his wife to Cannes in France, a very posh city, and noticed that a famous woman there was the center of attention. Everybody was looking at her. So he took his wife to Paris, slathered her in jewels. I mean, she was just a glitter from head to toe. And then they went back to the casinos in Cannes and showed up that showy bitch who had been the center of attention before. And now his wife was the center of attention.
1: Neener, neener, neener. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That wife may or may not have been Helen Stoddard, the former sex worker. His, His marriage times are kind of shaky. At some point, he divorced her and married Rella Cohen whose brother William Red Cohen was a former boxer and reputed gangster and also a murderer who had been in and out of prison, so. And then we have some stories from the man who acted as his personal secretary in London. And this corroborates what you said earlier about the literacy issue. He told me he had had no schooling of any kind and he could only read the smallest printed words with difficulty. He could not read written words and he could hardly write. I used to write his letters to his son at school and to his relatives, pay his bills, make his appointments, order his suits, and even go to the barbers with him. And then he also stated, Factor seemed to be a gentleman of leisure with any amount of money at his command. He said he had a business in America, but he was apparently doing no business in England. I was paid $8 a week, which is about $700 U.S. today. Not terrible. Not it's great. A, it's about middle class-ish back then. It's close to middle class, I guess. I saw him once with 12 notes for a 1,000 pounds each. He brought out one to pay his hotel bill and seemed upset because they could not change it. Uh, That's about $87,000 today. Wow. Yeah. He did seem to be pretty charitable. The secretary said that factor gave to the poor. He gave them coal and clothes and blankets in the winter, and he gave money to hospitals as well. But he was also... (laughs) Happy to give his money to the casinos, as we said. He was considered the biggest gambler the casino at La Toquay had ever seen. Wow. This again from the secretary. I have seen him win 16 million francs in less than two hours. He put 20,000 francs on the turn of a card and won. He did that five times in one night. I stopped doing monetary conversions at one point because it's just we, we know it's a shit ton of money. We know that.
1: (laughs) Yes, it is a shit ton of money on
0: a card. Yes, on a single card. And also, francs are harder to convert because it's no longer the currency, so it's just harder. Hey guys, I'm Steph, the host of Keystone State of Mind. If you're into true crime and dark history, then you'll love my show. I tell stories from the dark side of Pennsylvania history but you don't need to hail from the Keystone State to enjoy this podcast. All you need is some curiosity and a dark sense of humor. There are over 50 episodes to binge right now. So go to your favorite podcatcher and search Keystone State of Mind. Stay Keystoned, my friends. So that secretary, by the way, all of this coming out all these stories about Factor were in the, when the secretary was on trial in London in relation to this scam. And so he was charged with receiving sums of money that were the proceeds of a conspiracy to defraud and was sentenced to nine months in the second division. I looked this up and I'm pretty sure this is reliable. Second Division prisoners are kept apart as far as possible from other classes of prisoners. They receive more frequent letters and visits, and they wear clothes of a different color.
1: So, basically like a a low-security prison. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I almost feel bad for him because he probably didn't even really know what his boss was doing 100%. Like, he might have thought it was a legitimate business.
0: But then there's the fact that that he is writing all of the letters and doing the correspondence. You would think that if you have that much involvement in somebody's communications, you might figure it out, you know? I don't know, I, I, I kind of come down on the side of he at least had an inkling or a suspicion and just ignored it because he had a decent gig and he liked Factor.
1: Well, but he also could have, could have thought that Factor was actually taking this money to like, invest.
0: That's true, that's true. Because
1: Factor might not be able to really to read or write, but he knew numbers. Oh, he knew numbers. He could add them up. <laughs> yeah, so there, there is a real possibility that he thought it was legitimate, and since Factor knew numbers, he probably thought Factor was doing that on his own without his help.
0: Yeah, it's entirely possible. We don't know one way or the other.
1: Nine months in uh, second-tier prison, okay.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not a terrible sentence. That's no, it's not bad. So where is Factor while all this is going on and, you know, his secretary and other men are being convicted? Oh, well, he uh, skipped off to Monte Carlo, where he rigged the tables before hightailing it out of there and going back to the U.S. So there were rumors that he had betrayed. He had double-crossed Legs Diamond. Dun, dun, dun. And because of that, there was a price on his head. But he wouldn't have to really worry too much about that for very long because Legs Diamond died in December 1931. Meanwhile, like I said, his co-conspirators back in England are getting busted and there is a trial in which he's named and tried in absentia. Oddly, I can't, couldn't find very much about that in the papers. There were really a lot of details about this personal secretary's trial. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing about the trial of Jake Factor in absentia. Well, because nobody showed up. Well, true, Yeah. <laughs> His conspirators got a variety of short sentences, one got three years penal servitude, (laughs) one got 18 months hard labor, one got 12 months hard labor. I mean, they're short sentences, they're not great because it's, you know, hard labor. That's no fun. Yeah. It's right there in the name. (laughs) It's hard.
1: (laughs) Probably come out looking buff and stuff. Maybe.
0: Or rough. (laughs) Probably both. Yeah. And so, in his trial in absentia, Factor got 24 years, and in early 1932, he actually was in Chicago, and he was sent to jail pending extradition to England. He, of course, managed to get out of jail, likely on bail. Probably had a card. Yeah, <laughs> he probably did.
1: Here, I made this. It says mm-hmm. I, I get out of jail free.
0: Yep, yep. We've made it with a crown. And... So he's appealing this extradition. And in October 1932, the appeals court said, nope, off you pop. Have fun in England. Meanwhile, he's still in the stock game. And then in the middle of that, there's a little note about his lucky wheat deal, which I was like, what? Is he buying wheat now? But no, it's wheat stocks specifically. And uh, in, in the Chicago wheat pit, as they called it. He apparently made a killing. 200,000 pounds, which is just, will again, go with a shit ton of money today. A shit ton of money today, yes. He's continuing to appeal the extradition, meanwhile, and the Supreme Court granted him that right. The court heard oral arguments in the case on April 16th, 1933. And that was a big day. For Jake Factor.
1: That was a big day. Mm-hmm.
0: Not just because of the oral arguments, but he also received a very startling, I'm sure, piece of news. He found out that his son Jerome, who is 19 at this point, had been kidnapped. And this was the top headline in the Chicago Tribune and front page news across the country. So let's talk a little bit about Jerome. Jerome was a junior at Northwestern. He had lived with his mother, who is uh, Factor's first wife, who's now Mrs. Leonard Marcus. And no, they never tell us what her actual name is.
1: She doesn't need a name. No,
0: she's a lady. So he lived with his mother in an apartment in Rogers Park, Chicago, on Lunt Avenue. Jerome was 5'4", 122 pounds, so he's kind of a a little dude. I mean, 5'4 is about how tall I am, and 122 is about how much I wish I weighed. He had black hair and tortoise shell glasses. He had gone to Morgan Park Military Academy, where he was a cheerleader. Oh, there <laughs> like, you go. There was even a picture in the newspaper of him and his cheerleading days. <laughs> cheerleading used to be manly. You know what, though? So Now it- it's all about TNA. <laughs>
1: This actually makes sense to me though, because my husband is a gymnast, right? Mm-hmm. When you get involved in gymnastics at an early age, you tend to be shorter. Hmm. Yeah. 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 So Marcus is like is five three, and so him being five four makes sense if he was a gymnast and a cheerleader. And he was probably stunted in growth, but really muscular.
0: And he the top of the pyramid. <laughs> you put the light person on the top of the pyramid is what i'm saying you do you do
1: put the light person but usually usually men are at the bottom just because they have the stronger upper body strength but it was a military academy
0: so it was all men
1: oh it was all men okay so he was he was the twink of the academy (gasps) oh dear god (laughs) okay i I see where we're at with our hierarchy he's the twink He's at the top of the pyramid, Amber. I bet he is. (laughs) I bet he is.
0: So in 1933, at the time of his kidnapping, he was in pre-legal, pre-law, something like that, at Northwestern, active in college dramatics and debating. And he was a member of the Tau Delta Phi Frat. And so he has all this family drama going on at the time with his father's extradition hearings. And he was said to be very interested in them to the extent that he attended every hearing in 1931, and there were a lot, and he worried so much about his father's fate that he lost five pounds during this time period. He couldn't stand to lose anymore. I mean, really. Jake Factor had seen his son less than a week prior to the kidnapping when the two got together on Passover to hand out 3,000 baskets to the less fortunate on the city's west side. So, this kidnapping. It's a regular old Wednesday night. Jerome was out with a friend, having dinner, seeing a movie. Around 11 p.m., Mrs. Marcus, his mother, and a family friend were in the apartment, and they thought they heard someone scream, Mother, from the building's courtyard. They looked out and saw nothing, so they thought everything was fine. Now, there's a garage parking area nearby, and the attendant, James Hood, said that he'd seen Jerome coming home in his fancy car to the the parking garage just before 11 p.m. Hood said that he was asked to take Jerome home and then return the car to the garage. So we're fancy enough that we cannot let this young man walk, like, three blocks.
1: (laughs) No, Daddy's rich. Why would I walk that far? Yeah,
0: right? Right. Hood reported, as we drove up to the apartment building where Factor lived, I noticed a Ford sedan containing one man coming from the west and going in the direction of Sheridan Road. Now that intersects with the avenue that Jerome lived on, so he'd be passing by the apartment building. Hood said he didn't see anyone else. He just dropped the kid off and watched him go into the courtyard and then drove away when Jerome still wasn't home the next morning, Mrs. Marcus got worried. She looked around the courtyard. She found several cigarette butts and a dirty cotton handkerchief. And then Jake Factor returned home from D.C. where he'd been preparing for the hearing. Um, Although he he told the Chicago Tribune in what they themselves called a dramatic interview, that he didn't know about the kidnapping until he came home from D.C. He came home from D.C. and found out. It wasn't that he found out in D.C. and then came home. The kidnappers sent a ransom note to Factor that read, Mr. Jack Factor, if you want your son Jerome home, you will do as you are told. Get $50,000 in old money in small denominations. Have it ready on short notice. Do not notify police or we send him home in parts. Be ready to follow instructions on a minute's notice. It's up to you. Do you want your son or your money? Ooh. Mm-hmm. Send him home in pieces. Send you his ear. Factor said there was no way he could scrape up fifty thousand dollars, and that everyone exaggerated how wealthy he was. "Quote: I couldn't raise that much in six months. Two or three years ago, it would have been easy, but now it's out of the question." I had to dissolve a $2 million trust fund, which I established for my wife and sons, to pay $1.3 million in settlement of the civil claims of the English investors. And the long fight in the courts over the extradition matter has cost me a fortune. The police are not buying any of this, especially considering it wasn't so long ago that he was bragging about his big haul in the wheat markets, as well as a few other recent successes. Mm -hmm. Factor also said he'd never gotten any threats. But the paper had a source report that a private investigator had been hired in 1929 to watch Factor's other son, Alvin, who was three at the time. You know, you don't just randomly hire a private investigator if you don't have any suspicions, if nobody said, you know, I'm going to come after you or your family. Also, he's pissed enough people off.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, he's pissed enough people off. And also... We've done several cases of these kidnappings around this era. This was really the kidnapping era.
0: Yeah, literally one of my sources was all about kidnappings in this specific year.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because this was the time to, like, what a time to be alive. What a time to kidnap people. And it makes sense that he put protection on his three-year-old, thinking that that would be the target. It's the obvious target because three... You're not going to be able to really protect yourself. You're not going to, I don't know, be driving your own vehicle. And I feel like a 19-year-old would be a lot harder to kidnap, or should be. Yeah, agreed. Maybe he should have got him into wrestling and not cheerleading.
0: (laughs) Well, the thing is, is that the story changed in the press. It started off with, there have been no threats. And then it became, well, a P.I. was hired for Alvin. And then it became... There were so many threats recently that Factor was planning to pull Jerome out of school. There you go. So this story was constantly shifting. And so it's hard to know what was really true. So now the Chicago police, the state attorney's office, and the Bureau of Investigation, which will of course one day become the FBI, were all involved. If you remember the Lindbergh baby case, That had made it a federal crime to send an extortion letter through the mail. So, now we've got the feds all up in here, too. Mail fraud.
1: (laughs) Mail fraud.
0: Mail. Fake mail. (laughs) Mail. Fake mail. And so, the cops, according to the Tribune, were like, Hey, you know your gangster brother-in-law? Well, maybe we can just use him as a go-between. Which doesn't seem like maybe they're taking it seriously.
1: Or maybe they are, though, because really, if they think that maybe he's behind it, getting a murderer on your side is probably a good move. Maybe, yeah, yeah. If fucking Red Cohen shows up with the yeah. ransom money, I don't think they're going to fuck around and hand him an ear.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> they're going to give him the boy. Yeah, they are, yeah.
0: Jake Factor got a call from his son in the next few days And Jerome said he was being pretty well, but hey, you know, could you, uh, you know, pay the kidnappers that 50k, pretty please? That'd be super dad. Yeah, post-haste. There were theories that this was just for ransom, plain and simple, or that there was still some revenge coming for his betraying Legs Diamond and not giving him his cut, even though, again, Legs Diamond had been dead for two years at this point, almost.
1: And he still had some loyal followers, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Maybe it was like Elvis where people thought
1: that he was still around. He faked his own death. (laughs) Show me a body. They're still looking for Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah.
0: Factor said, I think this job was pulled by somebody who knows me and the family. It's a local gang. He thought that, he said, because if it were an organized syndicate... They would have gone about the ransom negotiations and such in a much more professional manner. He felt that this was not the high quality work we expect from a syndicate.
1: Oh, yes. Low quality (laughs) policemanship. Yes. Shocking for this time.
0: No, the high quality, low quality uh, ransom demands. (laughs) So, but yes, low quality police work is also (laughs) in the offing. He did make attempts to pay the ransom. Speaking of low quality, he always failed miserably for some reason. Including one time when he was out with a cop, a lieutenant on the force who was a family friend, and they were shot at right when they thought they'd spotted the kidnapper's car. (laughs) The kidnappers shot at them without warning or reason. So they shot back and then there was a little chase, but the kidnappers got away. Gosh darn it random gunfights in the streets. Yeah, well, it is Chicago in the 30s. That's pretty that's much fair. Yeah, that's pretty much the theme of Chicago in the 30s. It comes out that Factor had actually roped in some members of the Capone syndicate, including Sam "Golfbag" Hunt. I love these Bob names. Do you know why he's called that? Is that where he puts the bodies? No, that's where he puts the machine guns. Oh. He was the one who came up with the idea of hiding submachine guns in golf bags. Okay. So he was Sam Golf Bag Hunt. And so this little mini gang that Factor kind of roped in to help him was called Hunt's Secret Six, which feels like it's a ketchup recipe.
1: It does. It really does. Like, there's six ingredients in this ketchup, and it's the best ketchup you've ever had. (laughs) Or they kidnapped your son.
0: Yeah. Or both. Why not both? (laughs) The Hunt Secret Six did their own investigation, rooting through the underworld, trying to find out who had done this kidnapping. After several days, the police got an anonymous phone call. I bet. And this voice on the other end of the line said that if they went to the Congress Hotel, they would find some information on the kidnapping. Mmm. So the feds do a raid on a room at the Congress Hotel. Now, they have to threaten to kick open the door before the occupants will open it. But when they do, inside is Hunt's Secret Six. This is their little headquarters for their investigation. And this is how the police magically find what particular suspects the Secret Six have their eye on. There are pictures of three men on the table of the hotel room. This all feels very engineered and planned. Doesn't it, though? Yeah, very much so. So they figure out who these men are. They are Archie Brown, Ted Patterson, and Eddie Strauss. And they go and they pick them up. And it appears that they took these three suspected kidnappers and they had also arrested the six gangsters. And they put them all together.
1: Oh, that's a good plan.
0: (laughs) For what is called an unofficial investigation in a single cell. They give the gangsters an hour or so with these suspected kidnappers
1: But yeah, okay, so the Secret Six are in with these three suspected kidnappers. Mm Mm-hmm. And they have an hour to conduct an unofficial investigation.
0: Exactly. I love it. Mm Mm-hmm. I love it. It's all very on the up and up.
1: All right, guys, we're just going to take our lunch break. We're going to be gone for about 58 minutes. Make sure in 58 minutes everything is calm, okay?
0: We'll see you then. Yeah. Going to go get a sandwich. Right? (laughs) After that, they release the gangsters with a disorderly conduct charge and a small fine. Which I just love. Jerome's mother and the doorman of another building both identify these three suspected kidnappers. Jerome's mother said she'd seen them hanging out in a car in front of the building two nights in a row before the kidnapping. And the doorman in whose building one of Factor's friends lived said one of the men had come to his building with a message about Jerome's kidnapping. Two of them are ex-cons who had been in prison together. They had, they did have records of bank robbery and kidnapping. And then the third was the brother-in-law of one of the men.
1: Yeah, family. got to keep it in the family. Keep
0: it in the family, yeah. So, on April 21st, Jerome is released. He is dropped off blindfolded on a street corner, and we're going to leave him there for about seven days. (laughs) Stay there, Jerome. Stay there, Jerome. So next week, when we continue the Sordid Tale of Jake Factor, we're going to have another kidnapping. In the same family. I guess lightning does strike twice. Well, now I can say the name of my show notes
1: Cockamamie Kidnappings. Nice, <laughs> I like it.
0: <laughs> we'll also have some more fun with gangsters, the ultimate family role reversal, history repeating itself very quickly. And uh then eventually we'll cap it off with an actual murder. There you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> it'll take us a little bit to get there. So that is next week. And but right now Amber actually has a recipe for me.
1: Yeah, payback's a bitch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's have it.
1: All right. So, my recipe for you was for a stuffed camel. Oh, yeah, um And I'm pretty sure this is supposed to be a joke recipe, but I also really hope that at least one person did this. (laughs) So you need a whole camel, medium-sized, one whole lamb, large-sized, 20 whole chickens, medium-sized, 60 eggs, 20 kilos of rice, 2 kilos pine nuts, 2 kilos almonds, 1 kilo pistachios... 110 gallons of water, salt and pepper to taste.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The salt and pepper to taste gets me. It really does.
1: So you need to skin, trim, and clean the camel, lamb, and chickens, and then boil them until they're tender. That takes about an hour. I love that it says, be sure the pot is large enough. I mean, yes, but also
0: where do you get it? (laughs) I, I don't know. I mean, A, I don't know where to get a camel, but also I don't know where to get a pot big enough to boil a camel in. So A
1: whole camel and a lamb and 20 chickens. Yes. That's a very large pot. Uh, and then you cook the rice until fluffed. You fry the nuts until brown, which is a funny sentence. <laughs> and you mix the brown nuts with rice. Hard boil all 60 eggs and
0: peel them. That's a lot of hard-boiled eggs. That oh, can you is, imagine the
1: stench? Uh-huh. And then you stuff the chickens with the eggs and rice. There is something so horrible about stuffing chickens with their young... It just. Their hard-boiled young, yes. Their hard-boiled is, young. It is disturbing. And then you stuff the lamb with five of the chickens and some more rice... You stuff the camel with the lamb and more rice, and then broil in a large oven. Spread the remaining rice on on a large tray and place the camel on top. And then decorate with the remaining stuffed chickens.
0: Oh, yes. We're going to decorate with stuffed chickens. That's what we're going to do. That's what I'm going to do at my next party. I'm just going to decorate the whole house with stuffed chickens.
1: Yep. And this will serve between 80 and 100. So... That is your recipe of the day for a stuffed camel. Having it at my
0: next party. There you go. Just got to find a camel and... Um, a really big pot. Gigantic pot. I mean, yes. even the... It, like Potato Fest, the guy with the big tureen of potato soup would definitely not fit a whole medium-sized camel or it would fit... Maybe it's rump.
1: <laughs> I just, that's a lot of stuffing things and other things. Yeah,
0: it is, yes. It's definitely an interesting uh, recipe. I, I, I do agree that it has to be a joke, but I also do agree that I hope somebody tried it. <laughs> so, all right. Don't forget about our Patreon, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Link is maybe in the show notes. <sighs> More things to untangle. And we already talked about the social media. Uh, you can put us on a Spotify playlist along with some of your other favorite true crime episodes and share that on our social media. You can also now rate us on Spotify. So go over there and give us that five stars, you know, if if you want. I'm not going to put a gun to your head and kidnap you. (laughs) Not yet. We also have over on Good Pods, a tip jar and there's our PayPal. Uh, You can over at PayPal, use the email address oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. And that will also get you a shout out on the show. And uh, we have merch. We have the new logo on uh, the t-shirts and everything. Ah, yeah. That would have been at the top of the show if not for our lovely listeners sending in actual updates, which is somehow more exciting than new merch. It's way more (laughs) exciting than new merch. (laughs) It was so cool. I, like, screenshot things and I'm, like, sending them to Amber. I'm like, look, look what's happening. So, yeah, and tell your friends about Old Timey Crimey. If you like it, they'll like it. Share us. Share us with the world.
1: Share us with everybody. Share Share us with everybody.
0: You made it sexy and I made it creepy. Is what just happened there.
1: Well, anyone that knows me knows that my sexy is sometimes creepy. Yeah. So uh it it works both ways. It does, yes. All right, Amber, what you doing? Uh, I'm going to have some creepy sex is I don't know with who yet, but um I'm going I'm going to hop to it and uh let's get weird. You're going to share it with everybody. Share my love. <laughs> I'm just, I can't help but do the bush thing. <laughs> God, ecologists just need to share their love. <laughs> Women all over the country. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Are you stoned? I, I wish <laughs> I was stoned. I think that would maybe help.
0: <laughs> You've had a rough week. It's been a lot of... A it's a been a lot, lot of, of week. Everything. It's been a lot of week, yes.
1: No, I have a, I have a lot of crap. And and by crap, I mean horrible shit coming at work. And it's it's Mm. going to be a really um, interesting week. And so, yeah, just work, work, more work, all the other things. But yeah, but then we're going to have a white elephant party here, which is exciting. And I have some really weird
0: presents. I have really weird presents too. We always, it's always awesome to see what the gang uh, comes up with for white elephants. We're a bunch of sick fuckers. <laughs> it's There's been some really amazing shit and some really, really, really ridiculous shit. Oh, it's
1: awesome. Uh, yes.
0: Still my favorite remains when Yuri gave, uh, I, I was the one who opened this. Oh, that was amazing. Of course, we put a a limit. I think back then it was $20. And he bought like $18 worth of bubble wrap, a long roll of it. So I'm just unrolling and unrolling and unrolling this bubble wrap. And when I get to the end, inside is a pen, uh, a couple of Hershey's Kisses, and like 35 cents, I think, which rounded out... To the $20. Don't
1: forget there was also glitter wrapped up
0: in the bubble wrap. How could I forget the glitter? Because I ended up vacuuming during my party. Yeah. <laughs> there was, of course, glitter that got all over my house. And so I was vacuuming. And, uh, yeah, somebody actually, believe it or not, did steal that present from me. I believe it was Beast because she wanted to wrap herself up in it and then roll down the hill. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: That is uh,
0: that is accurate. Yes. Yes. So uh, So, yes, we're looking forward to that. And uh, I'm getting my shots this week, Hooray. so I'm eager to see what happens there. Although they say the first three to five days after your your, your pain may increase, and that just sounds great. <laughs> so uh, we'll see how that goes. So yeah, that's uh, that's what I'm doing. So yes, we will uh, be here next week with part two of the uh, Jake Factor and Jerome Factor. And all the factors. and all, all the factors. Yes, and all the kidnapping. And so much kidnapping.
1: <laughs> so if you guys want to hear what happens to Jerome, stay tuned.
0: Absolutely. And we will see you next week. Don't uh, go sell on any Bond, fake Bonds. Bond, fake Bonds. I really have driven that joke all the way into the ground and, you know, close to the, the core of the earth. But I don't care. Bye. Bye. My sources are The Kidnap Years, The Astonishing True History of the Forgotten Kidnapping Epidemic That Shook Depression-Era America by David Stout, John Tuey on My Family Business, and also on Roger Tuey Gangster, the Max Factor article on Wikipedia, Dr. Matthew Partridge in Money Week, the Bank of England Inflation Calculator, along the gradient, Major Smolinsky. Uh, case text and from newspapers.com the evening standard evening news daily news and chicago tribune my sources this week are wikipedia pressreader.com from the chicago
1: sun times by bill cundiff jta.org newspapers.com thank you chris garcia uh articles from the chicago tribune the evening news out of Wilkesbury, and the san francisco examiner and also myfamilybusiness.org
0: If you remember, it's getting to that point. <laughs> 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 it's, it's the blah, blah, blah point. <laughs> well, that's fine. I'm going to open my other coffee. Okay, there you go.